A few years ago, uh, quite a few years ago actually, Susan and I were uh, with our family on the beach and uh, in Florida, the waves were massive. The, wi- the, the beach had actually been black flagged and uh, for, because of the undertow was so great, but we didn't, we didn't actually notice the black flag. And the, so we were about five, five six feet into uh, the water, maybe, maybe 10 feet into the water, not very far, but the waves were huge and they were crashing in on, on us. And um, I don't know if you've ever been in the waves where they hit you so hard, you don't know which way is up. And uh, I've never been surfing or anything like that, but they, what they say is when a big wave comes over you and you're being turned around upside down and under the water and you don't know which way is up, you know, the only indicator is the, the direction the bubbles are going, you know, kind of a thing, to know which way is up. When we go through trauma and suffering and hardship and life hits us unexpectedly and just the, the kinds of things that all of us have been through or our loved ones have been through, we feel like a wave has hit us and we don't know which way is up. A lot of times people will talk about their suffering and you'll sit down with them and they, they, they get really honest and they'll say, you know, it just feels like I'm going through hell. And the hope of the gospel, it, it gives us hope amidst hell. When the wave hits us and we don't know which way is up, we need an indestructible reference point in our suffering to know which way is up. The good news of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, all the implications of God's great grace for us, it's that anchor that helps us know which way is up in our suffering. A couple weeks ago, I quoted from uh, a statement by Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York. He's an author, a modern-day theologian and apologetic. And he says it this way. He says, you can't get through life unless you know how to get through suffering. And you can't get through suffering unless you have a living hope. So we're going to turn this morning to 1 Peter chapter 1, which is the text I've used for the last two weeks, and so three times a charm. Don't worry, I'm not going to dust off last week's sermon and preach it again to you. Um, But we're going to go back to the same text, and we're going to go even deeper into what is Peter talking about when he says we have a living hope? What is he talking about when he says, when you get hit by the waves of life, and you don't know which way is up, how can our hearts find rest Where's that indestructible reference point in our suffering? 1 Peter chapter 1, the first nine verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith and for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, 
the salvation of your souls. This is God's word. We need the gospel hope. We need the indestructible reference point. We need the anchor when the wave of life hits us and we don't know which way is up. We need it because like the band REM said in 1992, everybody hurts. And we all come in those doors every week with our hurts. Us, our children, our loved ones, we have it. Here's today's sermon in a sentence as we go a little deeper into 1 Peter chapter 1. Resting in the implications of eternal life strengthens our hearts with grace for today and hope for tomorrow. And we want to look at the implications of eternal life. Um, We want to do this because in the beginning, in the garden, our parents, they sinned. And that sin has caused all of creation, this world, you know, you've got a natural... uh, You've got a natural break away from God. You've got a physical break away from God. We've got an emotional break away from God and a physiological break away even from ourselves and from each other. There's a lot, the brokenness of the world, we're on its trajectory towards death. But God, in his great grace, has interrupted that trajectory. He has interrupted the trajectory towards suffering that ends in death, and that's the end. And he has interrupted that trajectory with his great grace. And through grace and faith in Christ alone, he has introduced a new trajectory of life and of of restoration. But without the hope of that gospel, without the hope of what Peter is talking about here, life is an exercise of hoping that one thing works out after the next. And our hope in life is so fragile, a phone call can take it away. We just go through life needing circumstance after circumstance after circumstance to work out. That's what we are left with apart from the hope of the gospel. You know, Winston Churchill famously said, if you're going through hell, don't stop. But you know what Peter does here? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, hey church, I know you're going through hell. Push through it. He says, hey church, I know you're going through hell. You need to praise in something. He doesn't say push, he says praise. Why? Because all the perseverance that the scriptures talk about are flowing from praise. The power to persevere is not in the perseverance. Perseverance is a byproduct of something else. Hope in the gospel. Praise and resting, you know, in something. And uh, Peter doesn't come to the church and say, what you need to do in the middle of your suffering is visualize a better situation around the corner. What what Peter does is he says, you're not going to get find hope in in visualizing something better. You're going to find hope in remembering something that happened and the implications of what happened in Christ of the cross all the way forward to what is going to happen. That's where your hope is is going to be ultimately found. That's why in verse 6, Peter says, in this you rejoice. And he takes him back, and that stretches him forward. So we're going to go deeper into that this morning, and here's why. Because the strength of the hope of the gospel, like we've said the last two weeks, it's something that suffering can't strip away from us. See, without the hope of, of grace in Christ and resting in what that actually means, suffering strips our hope away. But as we rest in the grace of Christ... Suffering actually doesn't strip our hope away. Suffering pushes us deeper into our hope. So that the more we suffer, the more we actually have hope. 
As suffering increases, hope increases. See, that's what Peter's offering here. That's why he, he opens up by saying, grace and peace be multiplied to you. How, do you. how do you have a multiplication of grace and have a multiplication of peace if there's not a multiplication of great circumstances coming your way? Right? I mean, I can't think of anything more useless than preaching a sermon on how to enjoy great times. You know, I don't think anybody in here needs any help with that. Right? I mean, what we do need in good times is to actually remember that we're not God in good times, and that's a sermon for another day, right? That was, that was the children of Israel's problem when they hit the promised land. Hey, look what we did. Okay, no. But the, the reason why we need this is because our hearts can't enjoy what we don't understand. Our hearts can't rest in what we don't understand. So we want to understand, when, what is this inheritance? So we're going to talk about heaven today, probably next week. We're going to go into it because well, we don't have a great understanding of this inheritance of heaven. If we just have a coloring book idea of heaven... Uh, it's really not, it, it isn't hopeful because we just kind of dismiss it like this ethereal, intangible thing and we just go, okay, well, that's kind of a nice thought, heaven, but P.S., this thing I'm dealing with on Monday morning, preacher, how about you get to, you know, give me three points in a poem on how to attack that thing in a better way. I mean, ultimately is where our hearts want to go. Right? But my job every seven days, my God-given job is to dial you out from the, the, the stuff that your God-given creativity and ingenuity and wisdom and the wisdom literature of Scripture can help you with to curve you out to this great hope so that your hearts can actually have rest. And so it's, it, it, it's, we have to understand the inheritance so that we don't think it's like, you know, those old, heaven is those old Philadelphia cream cheese commercials. Is this heaven? Is this a lot of clouds? Is this a lot of, you know, angel wings involved? There's shirtless buff guys, you know, feeding, feeding women fruit. Some of the ladies are like, that sounds like a fantastic heaven. I'm up for that kind of heaven. You know, is that really what's, what the Bible depicts? Is it a, or some of you kids, you know, is heaven an eternal church service? Is that what heaven is? And kids are like, no, I don't want to go to heaven. You know, right? Like every, every ill-informed worship leader who has wrongly read the book of Revelation, you know, gets to the part where the 24 elders are throwing their crowns down and worshiping forever saying, holy, holy, holy. And they, they stand at the front and they, and they strum their guitars and they go, bring, you know, church. This is just going to be like heaven. We're just going to be doing this forever. And, and people are like, what? You know, like, I'm not sure I want to do this forever. I mean, I love Jesus, and now I feel really guilty like I don't love Jesus. But really? Is this what we're doing for heaven? Is this the picture? No, that's not the picture of heaven. We're going to spend a couple of weeks unpacking the goodness of heaven, according to the scripture. We're going to start with his inheritance, you know, this morning and look at that. That's not what it is. It's, it's, not, a, uh, it's not a blissful state of non-existence, right? We have modern ideas about heaven. We have, and if you engage in the cultural conversation about heaven, it's greatly informed by New Age kind of metaphysical concepts because we've got this idea that everything is spirit, you know, which is kind of the oprification of heaven. So this, everything's this blissful kind of spiritual exhibit. Nothing's really going on. And because you are people who are passionate and energetic and creative and you've got these gifts and you, and you, and you like being a human, you know, the idea of all of a sudden all of that stopping... And you're entering into an eternal state of kind of nothing going on but singing. Who's excited about this? Right? But that's not the picture that, that's not the picture that, that, heaven, uh, that the scriptures give us of heaven. The, the material is not gone. It's not eradicated. It's renewed. Right. Um, this is what's going on. How many of you, uh, you know, not just the teenagers and the kids, how many of you when you were younger, you thought to yourself, I hope I get to do these things before I die? You know, like, okay, yeah, yeah, I'm great for heaven, but as long as I can have sex first, that would be really good for me. 
Right? Okay, heaven's great, but as long as, 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 long as I can you know, start a career and go and travel the world. And, I mean, because this world seems really amazing. I mean, have you seen National Geographic photos? I mean, I'd like to see some of it before I just float around in clouds. All that. See, this is because we've got this, we've, we've imported the naive kind of coloring book cultural conversations about heaven. And so rather than recognizing that everything that we think is absolutely incredible about this earth is going to be perfected. Grace perfects creation. That's the overarching narrative of of what God is actually up to, perfecting what he began in the beginning. Everything that we enjoy that's actually, you know, good and loving and virtuous and beautiful about humanity, because there there are those things in in humanity, of course, because of God's great grace, and because we are image bearers, not not just Christians, but humans who, by God's common grace, do a lot of amazing and incredible things in the world. You know, God's grace is up to perfecting all of that. Not just erasing it into a state of nothingness. And so Peter is saying to the suffering church, guys, there's an inheritance that's kept for you. And there's going to be a lot of hope when you're suffering by reflecting on what's, what God's actually up to and, 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 and where everything is actually going. And so that's why in verses 3 to 5, I'm, going to, I'm actually going to read those 3 to 5. I'm going to read those verses again for you so they're fresh in your mind as I continue. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a, here it is, living hope, through what? Where's the living hope coming from? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's pretty key. We're going to get to that in a minute. Why is that important? Why is Jesus' resurrection so important to our hope? To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay? Now, let's, let's go back into this. So you've, you've heard me say many times, and I'm going to say it again, that the Bible... Bible depicts a trajectory of restoration. It is not a trajectory of evacuation. It's not God's like, well, devil, you won this round. I'm just going to blow up the world and we're all going to flow. Not with the biblical narrative. It, it, it's a narrative of restoration. And so what the scripture actually reveals is that there is going to be a great continuity between this earth and the new earth. How much continuity? I don't know. The scripture doesn't say I can't say. Right? Which body are we resurrected in? The 20-year-old version, which we were like, hey, oh, that'd be good. We don't know. The scripture doesn't say. But the point is that there's continuity. We see the continuity mainly uh, and most clearly in Christ's resurrection. Right? He's not resurrected as some kind of a Ghostbusters apparition where, you know, you see through him. He's got a body. He says, hey, can I have some fish? Do you have anything to eat? And then he eats the fish in front of them. Why does the Bible give us this kind of detail? Because it's painting a picture of what's, what's up for you. A restoration of the earth in the most majestic way, in the restoration of your body in a majestic way, living forever with the people of God in this beautiful and restored state, and in this beautiful and restored way. So we're being swept up into God's original plan. When you look at the garden, what did God do? He creates people, and then his command is, go create amazing civilization. Go use your brains and, and, and be fruitful. So when God says, be fruitful and multiply, he's not just saying, stay naked forever, stay in a garden forever, wear leaves forever, and have a lot of children, which is a lot of people interpret that first. For, but it's this great command to go and use all of the ingenuity that he created. We all know that scientists tell us that we only use a, a fraction of our brain, and it's because all of the incredible things in this earth that we enjoy is basically done on the residue of what God had created and intended for us to be able to do in the first place. So heaven is, is grace perfecting what he began in the beginning. This is the trajectory. And so, so as, as you um, 
look at this in the scripture, I'll fast forward to the end in Revelations chapter 21, God says, behold, I am making all things new. He doesn't say, behold, I'm making all new things. Right? Grammar is important. Right? We don't just throw out grammar. Well, what's being said here? I'm making all things new. I'm in the business of restoring what I was up to in the beginning. Right? You like being a human? Wait until you see Jesus Christ as humanity perfected. He's 100% God and 100% man. He's humanity perfected. Right? Where, is our, where is our Lord now? He's in the realm of God. He's with God. But what is he in? He's in a physical, he's in a physical risen body. There's a lot of mystery there. Can I explain that? No, I can't. Maybe if I was a, a scientist who could use a lot of incredible you know, uh, uh, science to talk a little bit more about the possibility of, of, uh, of other realms. And you know, how, there's a lot of discussion around that in the scientific community. I think that's fantastic discussion. I think that's very interesting discussion. Um, uh, because the universe would be a great, a great, great, glorious waste of space if we were, if all it was up to was, you know, this is all that's going on. I think there's a whole lot going, going on in terms of God in the realm of heaven with the Son sitting down at the right hand praying for you. And in the book of Revelation, the realm of God is going to kiss this realm. This is the picture Revelation gives us. And it restores all things. And we, and we uh, continue in this gracious trajectory that the scriptures give us of what he's up to. So we're being swept up into his original plan. When you look at the book of Revelation, it's apocalyptic, of course, the genre. So it's highly symbolic. So you can't read the book of Revelation literally. It's not intended to be written that way, but it begins literally. Verse 1 says, hey, it says this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The next couple chapters, there's seven churches that are really suffering in modern-day Turkey. That's where they were. Right? My, my prof, Dr. Gage, who was the Old Testament prof, and he also taught my, my course on Revelation. Each year he takes students to modern-day Turkey, and they study the regions where the seven churches of Revelation are from in modern-day Turkey. Why? They were going through real suffering, real hardship, and so John on the island of Patmos writes on this great revelation of Christ, and it's really apocalyptic, and it's really symbolic, and it's hard to follow, but the point of it was he was lifting the hearts of the church to say, God is going to, God is going to make all things new. He is going to restore everything. Um, C.S. Lewis in his book Mere Christianity he says about the human soul we have this relentless longing for lasting happiness every human soul not just Christians everybody wants a a, wants a uh, lasting happiness wants this lasting joy they want the eradication of sorrow from a from a humanist worldview right they want a utopia right but if I was to borrow from Peter Hitchens who's Christopher Christopher Hitchens is a a famous uh, uh, atheist uh, a brilliant mind, and his brother, Peter Hitchens, was also an atheist, but he wrote a book called uh, Rage Against God, How Atheism Led Me to Faith. And in the book, Peter Hitchens talks about how when he was a humanist, he realized that, you know, because you've got this idea of utopia, man doesn't need God to be good, we can be good all on ourselves, we're intelligent beings, and we can, we can have virtue without God, apart from God. And he realized that the idea of utopia meant he was a homeless utopian. That's the term he used. It was a brilliant term. He said, I'm a homeless utopian because I'm denying the idea that there could be a heaven, but I'm also looking at the world and realizing this is a homeless utopia. He lived in the Soviet USSR, so you better believe that he had a real clear picture of what was being propagated as a system apart from God, intentionally apart from God, that could create a utopia, and then behind those doors, mountains of skulls that said, man is incapable of of this. So he called himself a, a homeless Utopian. It's interesting. Think about it this way. When we say things like face reality, what do we mean? 
something good. We never say, you got to face reality and mean utopia and mean limitless possibility. We always say, face reality. And what we mean is, deal with the limitation, deal with the, deal with the suffering, deal with, the, deal with what is. But you see, the hope of the gospel is that what's reality is what God is, was actually up to. And what he's restoring, that's reality. So what Jesus is saying to the suffering, what Peter was saying to the suffering church, and what I'm saying to you in your various forms of suffering is, face reality. The reality is, God is in the midst of restoring something glorious that we get to enjoy forever. And it, and it gives us strength and grace for our suffering today and hope for tomorrow. I'll borrow from George MacDonald, who is a 19th century theologian and writer, and he says this, The bedrock of reality is the triune God, whose delighted love is an unquenchable source of vitality, joy, and pleasure. To be home in such a reality is heaven indeed. Right? So the reality that God created is the reality that God is restoring. This is the reality of heaven, not floating around doing nothing, but being perfected humans in grace on this earth with God as our God in our midst, forever flourishing, forever creating civilization, forever using our faculties to his glory without the risk and the worry and the threat of suffering, sickness, death, evil, oppression, and everything else about the world that we wish we could eradicate. That's what God's up to. That's what he's doing. This is our hope in our suffering, in our sickness. This is our hope uh, for all of this. You see, we want to believe that we can have unending joy and unending happiness and unending peace and unending fulfillment in things or in relationships or in careers or in business or in our reputations or in whatever, apart from God. That's the condition of the human heart. We don't need God for that. We can have this utopia without God. We want to believe that we are reasonable and educated people capable of being good all on our own. But then we do a little bit of a five-second Google search, and we realize that we, these reasonable people, spend one point, what is it, seven trillion dollars every year globally in military, and we will spend one point seven trillion next year, and the year after that, and the year after that, and the year after that. Why? Because we, intelligent, you know, gracious and loving people who can inherently be good apart from God, won't put our guns down. We won't put our guns down. Why won't we put our guns down? Because we believe in our inherent goodness. I mean, we would put our guns down, but we don't believe that they would put theirs down, whoever they are. So we like the idea of inherent goodness when we're talking about ourselves. We aren't so much about the belief of inherent goodness when we're about other people on, on many levels. I'm just using, I, I, I'm, I'm painting this on a backdrop of, of, of global uh, inability to have peace. Uh, I'm painting it on that backdrop, but we can shrink that down into our day-to-day. -day. My ability to believe that all my motives are pure and my marriage are greater than my ability to believe that Susan's mo motives could you know, kind of be pure towards me and my ability to think that, well, I could be a good guy, but you... I mean, we can shrink it down and make it very personal. But this is the dilemma. But the goodness of the gospel and the hope of the gospel is that we've been taken out of that trajectory. We've been put on a total other trajectory. So when Peter says inheritance, hey guys, rejoice in this inheritance, find this rejoice in your inheritance, he's saying the restoration of the created order. It's everything that the human heart wants in this world but can't have. Right? Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says God has put eternity in our hearts. It doesn't say God has put eternity in Christian hearts. It says God has put eternity in our hearts, which means every human being longs for a joy that doesn't end, a happiness that doesn't end, and an eradication of evil, but can't get it. 
So what happens is, the eternity that's in our hearts, we suffer, we get sick, you know, and what, do, what are the things that we all say? We say, why is this happening? It's not fair. They're such a good person. The outrage. Why? I don't understand. It's unfair. It's unfair. This is the cry. This is the outcry of all suffering. And it, it, of course, because we weren't made for the kind of pain. We weren't made for it. But we're living in it. We have to deal with it. So there's two ways to deal with it. You can say, deal with reality. Or you can say, deal with reality. Deal with the reality of what it means to be a human on, on planet Earth and you're suffering and this life is all there is, so it sucks to be you. Deal with your reality. Or we can say, deal with our reality, the way Peter encouraged the church to deal with the reality and go, deal with your reality. God created a reality that we really screwed up that he's restoring. This is your reality. This is your trajectory. This is what God is up to. This is what God is doing. C.S. Lewis, again, to borrow from him, he said in his uh, book, uh, Mere Christianity, our world is a shadowlands. It is a copy of something that once was Eden and yet will be the new earth. It's a shadowlands. We live in this shadowlands. And so, and so we get to enjoy every good thing, knowing that it's from God's great grace, and we can grieve every sorrowful thing, knowing that one day God is eradicating all of that. Right. And so without the hope of grace, which is why I'm preaching the sermon three weeks in a row, it, without this hope of grace, we will chase things. We will chase the next relationship, the next dollar, the next business deal the next shiny thing at the mall, the next, the next, the next. We will, we will chase the next follower on Twitter, the next like on our Instagram, the next, the next. We will just chase forever the next thing without rest because our hearts were meant for something bigger, but we're left in this world of the sorrow and the disappointment. So we need our hearts to rest in the gospel so that we can enjoy good things without turning them into ultimate things. And so this is the um, trajectory of 1 Peter 1. This is the trajectory of from the garden to Revelation 21, where you see what is God actually up to. This is what he's up to. Otherwise, we need more. We end up in that cycle of addiction where we turn these little gods into these insufficient little drugs that are incapable of, like, giving us the high that we want. And so we're always after that, uh, always after that next thing, and our souls are crying out. Why? It's not fair that we're suffering. It's not fair that I'm going through this. And it's so true. Right? But here's the thing. Um, it's good that God's not fair. He's not fair. So don't come away from the sermon and think I'm saying God is fair. He's gracious. See, if God was fair, he would just leave us alone. If God was fair, he would leave us alone. And do you know what our trajectory is? Unless you are here and you have somehow have a solution for death, which happens to be my biggest problem. God would just leave us alone. And if God left us alone, our trajectory would be, would, would be death and eternal torment. But God is not fair. He's gracious. So he interrupted that trajectory. He interrupted that trajectory with the message of the gospel, with Jesus Christ. He interrupted that trajectory by coming himself and saying, believe in me, put your faith in me, trust in me. You can't fix this problem. Uh, humans, we have a problem. You can't fix the problem. So trust in me. I'm here to fix the problem. This is the message of Christ. And then we put our trust in him, we put our rest in him, and we recognize that that is true, that Christ has interrupted that trajectory towards death and torment, and he's given us eternal joy and eternal life. And so the bodily resurrection of Jesus, which is what Peter gets to, right, it says something. It says that we are not like corn being husked from our bodies, 
into this kind of state of nothingness that nobody's really excited about. The resurrection of Jesus in a physical body, saying, hey, do you guys have any fish? Is a picture of hope for you that you spend an eternity with God in the restored world. The resurrection of Jesus Christ in a physical body gives us uh, the hope that we're not just going to float around and play harps doing nothing. Because that idea turns the church into a ghetto. Right? Because then we're kind of like, well, you know, none of it really matters. It's hard to tell our, it's hard to explain to our children why anything matters. It's hard to explain why work anything matters. Should we recycle? Does that really matter? Does any of it really matter? Then that's where that all leads. If you, if you think that God is about just blowing everything up, then it doesn't make any sense to get engaged in the city or, or I mean, because you just, the, the church just becomes a ghetto. But that's not the picture of scripture. So all of a sudden, everything you're doing matters big time. Because you are resting in grace, and you are now a minister of God's grace. You are resting in the gospel, and now you're a minister of the gospel. So it doesn't matter what your vocation is. You go and you do it gloriously to the glory of God. And all of the church, we serve our city with our gifts in various ways, and we do everything we can to serve human flourishing. Because, we, because God is up to restoration, and we are now joyously, as his children, participating in restoration. It doesn't mean that we're the ones that are doing it. it mean, God is ultimately doing it. How much, you know, stays and isn't here in the, in the new earth? I have no detail in the scripture on that. I can't go to the scripture and talk about that. But all of a sudden, your work and everything that you're doing, it matters greatly. The way that we see uh, family and marriage and children and human, all of a sudden, everything matters. Everything matters, not because we're trying to earn anything from, from God, but because we're like little kids who've put on our dad's shoes and we're clumping around the house because we want to be like him. Our father is restoring. And so we want to be agents, ministers of that grace and of that restoration, of loving and caring for people, of loving our neighbor, right? of being able to give of our time, give of our finances or our resources or whatever, give of our gifts. Because we don't need to live a I need everything for me life because we're free from that. And so this is the trajectory. All of a sudden, all of it matters, right? I'm a little curious as a preacher, you know, what am I going to do in the new earth? I'm definitely unemployed. You know, there's no, no doubt about that. I mean, you just do not need a guy talking about Jesus, you know, uh, in the resurrection. So I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to be up to. Maybe I'll find one of you guys. You can give me a job or something in the, in the new earth. But in the new earth, the picture, that of, the picture of Revelation 21 is, uh, it's, it's, it's uh, metaphorical. It's, it's, it's uh, what I'm, what's the word I'm looking for? It's apocalyptic literature. So it's a symbol. But it's a symbol of a city coming down. So when Revelation says, I saw the new the new Jerusalem coming down. It's not a literal city coming from the sky. It's not coloring book Christianity. It's just John saying, Christ has returned, he's coming, he's bringing a kingdom, and there's a new city. The Bible begins in the book of Genesis in a garden. It ends in the book of Revelation in a city. It begins in the book of Genesis with a wedding. And it ends in the book of Revelation with a wedding feast. Great celebration. Christ has returned. The king has returned. Let's eat, let's drink, because yesterday we were dead. Right? That's the trajectory of Scripture, the restoration of all things. I'm going to close with this. And it's that God is making all things right in relationship to himself. And so Peter is calling the church, and I'm calling you, church, today, to think about the fulfillment of everything we've heard throughout all of redemptive history. There's a God, there's a people, there's a land. I mean, that theme is, on, is, is throughout the, the entire Bible. There's a God and his people and a land. It's just that the people is more than we thought. The people is not just the nation of Israel. The people is all those who've placed their faith in Christ from every nation. The land is bigger than we thought. It's not Canaan. 
It's the earth. It's the renewed earth. God is in the business of restoring. And all of this hope, everything I'm saying to you today, is hinging on a great hinge, the empty tomb. If Christ was contained by death, then so are we. But if Christ broke the barriers of death, so will we. And the good news of the gospel is not that we stare and try and figure out heaven, which is a little bit like, you know, staring into a fog. We stare at the one who very, very clearly came out of the fog to meet us, to give us great hope. This life is not all that there is. His great grace. That's the good news for the church. The good news for us this morning is that united to Christ, our inheritance coming to us is that constant state of happiness that we crave. It's the constant state of joy that we crave. It's the deliverance from our pain. It's the deliverance from our suffering. It's the deliverance from sickness, disease, and death, and brokenness. The Father planned to restore you in grace. The Son did everything he needed to do to restore you in grace. And the Holy Spirit right here and right now is causing your heart to rest in that restoration of grace. We rest in the implications of our eternal life. And this gives us great rest for today and great hope for tomorrow. Let's pray.